I'm now recording me drunkenly eating pizza. I'm so glad we're still doing this tonight. I can tell that it's going to be a stellar episode <laughs> all round. If there's one thing you can guarantee, Sam, I'm going to be professional, isn't it? You just guaranteed professionalism with me. Have you wiped your face on your research notes? <laughs> yeah, no, they're just covered in crumbs and pieces of avocado that fell off. It's, there's nothing middle class about this podcast at all. We're just two blue collar, hardworking guys. <laughs> Eating avocados <laughs> and, and sipping, <laughs> eating avocados and quinoa. Nothing says I've been out on the Raz. Like smashed <laughs> like avocado. avocado. <laughs> Are you gonna be? Am I gonna have to edit out loads of little burps? <laughs> <laughs> we're going. It's rolling now. It's oh, okay, live. Mike, we're off. Okay, sorry. Hello, Tom. <laughs> hello, hello, Sam. I fucked it already, haven't I? Okay. Yeah. And hello, audience, and welcome to episode four of That Was Genius, a weekly history podcast in which two blokes on different sides of the world amaze each other with a story about history. And this week, we are talking about historic Tinder dates slash bromances slash love matches. Oh, recording this the day after Valentine's Day. Do you get laid, Tom? <laughs> set the tone. You don't have to answer that. You set, don't have to answer that. Set the tone, Sam. I like it. <laughs> That's a nice breaker, isn't it? <laughs> Certainly is. Um, Tom, by the way, has been drinking. Yes. I'm sure the intro to our podcast will have made that abundantly clear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. How have you found this week's challenge, Tom? It's been good. It has been good. I've gone for a different era, Sam. I, what, I've done Greek, I've done Roman, and I've done Viking, so I decided I'd go Tudor. Ooh, so you're going forwards. I'm regressing. Oh, I'm going where backwards. Where did you go? I've started. Uh, I've gone. I've gone right ah. fucking back. I've gone back to three thousand. Uh, no, uh, two thousand three hundred oh, wow. BC. Two thousand seven hundred BC. In fact, <laughs> edit edit the two attempts out, and then we'll go for the third. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! This is going to be awful. It's not. We're going to have to do all the editing, Sam. I don't care. <laughs> so two thousand seven hundred BC, and who's this? I am going to talk about the love story of Ishtar and Tammuz. Oh, very nice. Uh, A.K.A. My cottage cheese brings all the girls to the yard. A.K.A. Summer loving. <laughs> right. Excellent. And if that's not a teaser that's going to keep people listening, I don't know what is. Absolutely. It's a curious teaser. And what are you talking about today, Tom? I'm going to talk about the wedding of Prince Arthur of Wales and Catherine of Aragon. And that's nothing to do with Aragon, son of Arathorn, either. It's a place in Spain, I've learnt. So the the wedding of Prince Arthur and Catherine. Have you heard about that wedding, Sam? I've never heard of that wedding. Have I heard of Catherine of Aragon, though? You have indeed. And that's because Catherine of Aragon was the first wife of Henry VIII. But we will come on to this. It's an interesting story. It would be a bit cliche of me to go for some one of Henry VIII's wives. You know, that's quite predictable when we're talking about the topic of, of romance. So I tried to go, I tried to take a different angle, Sam. I went for Prince Arthur, who was Henry's older brother. But I won't tell you any more, because we haven't decided who's <laughs> going to go first. Well, uh, do you know what? Fuck it, we usually flip a coin, but this week I don't even have my pink tape measure to hand. <laughs> ah, okay. And I put, I've just put my pizza in the fridge as well. We could have used the pizza. <laughs> Uh, so today we're going to flip. Uh, we're going to flip a tram ticket. Nice. There we go. Excellent. Reaching, reaching whatever I have to hand. Would you like the side that says "off-peak adult return," <laughs> or would you like the side that says 
Thank you for traveling with Metrolink. <laughs> oh, I would like to. I would like the thank you for traveling with Metrolink. Sweet. Okay, I'm flipping the ticket. You're not going to be able to hear this. I did hear something. Uh, you heard something. Excellent. You win. Fantastic. Right, does that mean I go first? I'll go first, shall I, Sam? Because I'm going to run out. Go I'm going to run out it. of steam in half an hour. And um, before I get started on my Tudor tale, <laughs> you're going to be asleep in your seat by the end of the <laughs> time we finish, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. <laughs> so, I, I be- Granddad, <laughs> give him a nudge. Give Granddad a nudge. Before I start on my tale, Sam, I would like to actually just go back to something we discussed in the last episode, which was the highlight of the episode, which was Big Break. Now. I don't think you would have believed that Big Break could be quite so interesting. For a start, we need to correct um, something we got wrong. It actually ran from 1991 to 2001. Um, that's not the interesting oh. bit, but <laughs> that's definitely not, <laughs> definitely not the interesting bit. You're not bit. wrong, Tom. You're not wrong. <laughs> the interesting bit. Now, this is, as someone who enjoys music, Sam, you are going to like this. Now, the song is actually called The Snooker Song. Do you know where it came from, Sam? Did it come from snooker? <laughs> well, there's definitely a connection there that most of us can, can make. Um, it actually came from a musical based on a Lewis Carroll poem called Hunting of the Snark. Really? Absolutely. And it was a poem... So the musical was written by a chap called Mike Batt. And in 1986, it played at the Barbican with the London Symphony Orchestra. It was a costumed concert. And this just gets even weirder, Sam. Uh, Mike Batt, that rings a bell, or am I going to spoil your thunder by... Oh, you... You come later, just in case you are going to spoil my thunder. Give me an extra two <laughs> That's minutes. That's the first time anyone's ever said that. <laughs> yeah, give me, give me another two minutes. There was an album, so shortly after the musical, there was an album released with the songs. And listen to this. This is some of the artists that were on this album. Roger Daltrey from The Who, Art Garfunkel, George Harrison, John Hurt was narrator, and Cliff Richard. The snooker song was performed by a Captain Sensible. Have you ever heard of Captain Sensible? Vaguely, vaguely. So, yeah, th- would you believe that a theme tune to Big Break had such a um, s- such an interesting history? There you go. I was quite surprised when I found that out. So the Big Break theme tune was written by Mike Batt. Absolutely. Do you know what else he wrote? No, no, I don't. Mike Batt is responsible for the Wombles. Is he really? He wrote the Wombles theme tune. Well, I never. Would you like to sing it, Sam? For people who have never heard the Wombles theme tune. <coughs> remember you're a Womble. Remember, remember, remember you're a Womble, Womble, Womble. You are... Something like that. Uh, I can't remember most of the lyrics. That was beautiful. I was carried away to a beautiful place there, Sam. And when you stopped, I was just—I snapped straight back to where I am. Hades. Hades is where you're Um, So yeah, that was the big break theme tune. Uh, Sorry to delay me telling you my story that I've researched. That's all right. I know you're still trying to find your notes. (laughs) So let me get on to my story. So I've already alluded to the fact that I'm going to talk about the wedding of Prince Arthur of Wales and Catherine of Aragon. Let's have a, a few facts on Prince Arthur of Wales. So he was the first son of Henry VII of England and Elizabeth of York. And as many of you will know, Henry VII ended the War of the Roses at the Battle of Bosworth, where he defeated Richard III, which we all know is cockney rhyming slang for a turd. So he was desperate, Henry VII was desperate to unite the House of Lancaster and the House of York after what was close to half a century 
um, the, the latter half of the 15th century of almost constant warring. A very unpleasant period in English history. People from Lancashire and people from Yorkshire still hate each other to this day. The most popular tea in Britain is, is Yorkshire tea, or one of the most popular teas, and people in Lancashire refuse to drink it. Interestingly, Sam, that the houses of Lancaster and the houses of the House of York, they have very little to do with the city of Lancaster and the city of York. So a lot of the lands held by the House of Lancaster, for example, I think were in the Welsh, in, in Wales. And likewise with the House of York, they had a lot of land in Wales. So actually, it, it, it's very... Uh, it's actually quite unrelated to the cities, believe it or not. Oh. Yeah, so that interesting that fact. very confusing. Yeah, interesting fact for you there. So um, Henry VII is very, very keen to uh, tie up the lines of succession to the throne and just hopefully lead to a period of peace in British history and also secure his position on the throne. So his first son is Prince Arthur, as you know, who is named after um, the mythical King Arthur. Um, and an interesting fact I found when I was researching, Sam, do you know which of King Arthur's knights designed his round table? No. It was circumference. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. Oh, did I blindside you with you that You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, I wasn't <clears throat> expecting that, but I'm glad it arrived. Excellent. Good. Excellent. That's my Valentine's gift to you. <laughs> so, Prince Arthur of Wales is the first son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. He's born in 1486, and for you and I, Sam, uh, this is quite interesting. He was born at St Swithin's Priory in Winchester, beside Winchester Cathedral. For listeners, Sam and I went to college in Winchester, and no, we didn't go to Winchester College, which is an internationally famous posh boys school um, we didn't go to that one we were our parents weren't wealthy enough um so no we only bummed for fun not tradition <laughs> you bummed for fun. Uh, so in 1489 little prince arthur is made knight of the bath how <laughs> cool is that sam knight of the bath that would have been one way for my parents to get me to get in the bath when i was a child exactly he was only three years old and he gets made knight of the bath i mean how brilliant is that as a title for a three-year-old he would have loved it you could use that though couldn't you because you've got kids you could name one of them sir eats his broccoli <laughs> and the other one <laughs> lady does a homework absolutely you have to you have lawful responsibility <laughs> yeah we'll have a whole ceremony around the eating of the broccoli which he has to he has to go through to become a, a knight of the broccoli so knight of the bath at the age of three fantastic and it made me think sam if you were a knight of the bath what other knights would you have around your i well, you could have, you could have a round table couldn't you i thought of a couple which i thought were quite good i would have sir quackalot which would be a rubber duck yeah yeah and then I thought of Sir Flannel Washbottom. <laughs> that's that's beautiful. There's two other that's... two other possible knights of the bath. <laughs> Interestingly, it wasn't really an order, so it wasn't an order of knights like um, like the Order of the Garter, for example. And um, what it was more about was a sort of elaborate ceremony for the investiture of the Prince of Wales. And because he was the Prince of Wales, I think he had to just go through this ceremony. Um, which involved... Lord Bubbly Fart. <laughs> Lord, Lord Bubbly Fart's a quack a lot and some, some flannel wash. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was far too long of a gap, but I just wasn't ready to let that go. Can you imagine them riding into battle? <laughs> so... 
<laughs> Sorry, Sam, I've lost it. <laughs> anyway, so the Knights of the Bath, the bath element of it is a sort of purifi- purification process. As we know with Christianity... As, as baths usually are. As you, it's, yes, pure, absolute purification of one's crotch and armpits, yes. And, you know, in Christianity... Baptism is a sort of pure um, a purification ceremony. Likewise, to become an, a knight of the bath, you you were washed in a bath by uh, more senior knights. I can't help. <laughs> oh it's yeah, a bit homoerotic. That old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, a bit homoerotic, isn't it? Um, and I'm just mm. I'm picturing a knight in full armor, you know, trying to get into a little bath, and it's just it's just not a it wouldn't be convenient, would it? You know, imagine the rusty chainmail and the you know, flooding your codpiece. It just wouldn't be very comfortable, I think, getting into a bath in full in full armour. Yeah, that's what the brown staining in the bath is. It's just rust coming off your chainmail. <laughs> rust mail. coming off your chainmail. In 1491, Prince Arthur is made a Knight of the Garter, which I think is just showing off. And if we go back a week to our previous podcast with poor old Bjorn the Ungartered, who uh, was so devoid of garters that he was named Bjorn the Ungartered. And here we have little Prince Wales at the age of, what, five? And he's a fucking knight of the garter, the pompous little git. Yeah, 500 years is a long time, though, isn't it? I mean, garter technology has increased tenfold well, you, in the period between the ungartered and the garter. You're probably right. It's it's probably easier to get hold of a good garter. It's much like the car. Yes. If you look at 100 years ago, who had a car? Yep. You know, we were all Ivan the Uncard. <laughs> so we all, Prince Arthur. Now I'll get I'll get onto his death because this will this will be a bit of background information for why Catherine of Aragon then got married to Henry VIII. So he died in fifteen o two of sweating sickness at the age of fifteen. Let's do a bit of information about Catherine of Aragon. So she was born in fourteen eighty five. So she was a year older. Uh, than Prince Arthur, and she was the daughter of Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, and they were the monarchs of Spain, which was one of the the big players, big powerful kingdom now. Catherine of Aragon was actually the third cousin of Henry VII, and the fourth cousin of Elizabeth of of York. It, It is a bit incestuous, but by the standards of royal families of Europe, that is about as far apart as you could possibly have gotten. That might as well be a blind date. Absolutely. And, and to be honest, Sam, when you look into it in more detail, you realise why. And it was because Henry VII was so keen to tie up his lines of succession. So it played, a, there was a dual role here in this arranged marriage. Not only was it um, an alliance with a powerful European country, but it was also kind of tying up that side of a succession dispute. This is quite interesting, Sam, on a, on a little bit more of a serious subject. For anyone who ever feels like they want to doubt uh, the value of Western medicine, listen to what it was like to try and give birth as Catherine of Aragon in the early 16th century. So this is someone who would have had access to the best physicians in the entire land. 1509, miscarried a girl. 1510, son died after 52 days. 1513, stillborn child. 1514, stillborn child. 1515, Mary I is born. 1517, a miscarriage. 1518, a child dies after only a few hours. Um, that's what childbirth. Jesus. Yeah, that's what childbirth has been like for the majority of human history, Sam. Um, so anyone who fancies criticising Western medicine, um, fuck off back to the Tudor period and then try and have your children. So that's, that's <laughs> they've been told. Yeah. So so that's poor old Catherine of Aragon. Um, anyway, let's go on to the romantic element of this. 
So Prince Arthur of Wales and Catherine of Aragon are betrothed to each other. There's the Treaty of Medina Campo, which is in 1489, when the two of them are only four years old. And it's an agreement that the two would be married when they become of canonical age. And the dowry is set at 200,000 crowns, which equates to probably five or six million pounds in modern money. So a big dowry there. In 1497, the two are betrothed by proxy, which apparently was quite common in this period for um, uh, wealthy individuals and royalty. So obviously betrothed by proxy just means that someone else turned up on their behalf. And in 1499... So they went through the ceremony with someone else. Oh, I don't know. I don't think they did that. I don't think they had an elaborate ceremony. I think someone else just sort of signed the papers, perhaps. Right. Oh, that makes that makes more sense. Yeah. That'd be really awkward otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, who are you? So 1499, <laughs> they're married by proxy. In this sort of period when it becomes clear that the two are going to get married, we get some love letters between the two of them. If there's anything, Sam, that, that, that melts my heart, it's... The, the love letters of snotty teenage spoilt brats. It's Tudor sexting. Oh, Tudor, Tudor sexting. I'm gonna, so I'm going to try and read out this love Sending letter. Sending saucy portraits. Oh, t- oh, have you seen some of the portraits, so Sam? I mean, they're not flattering. <laughs> you know, it's not Instagram, you know, where people take 15 different, you know, 15 attempts at a photo and then they find the one that makes them look like a supermodel. No, I think the portrait artist had one attempt. So here's a letter from Prince Arthur to Catherine and um, I'm going to read it in the manner that I imagine Prince Arthur would have would have read it himself I cannot tell you what an earnest desire I feel to see your highness and how vexatious to me is this procrastination about your coming <laughs> what are you be hastened is this supposed to be a voice breaking yes that's my voice that's me doing a teenager's voice breaking <laughs> I thought at least do it in a Welsh accent. I thought that was clear. Oh, okay. So sorry. So having just criticised my attempt at someone's voice breaking, you're now adding the complexity of a Welsh accent to it. Are you, Sam? Right. Okay. Well, it wasn't going to get any worse. <laughs> okay, let's have a go. Let it be here, Sunday. I do love conceiving. No, this is very much like our Vikings from last week. Love conceived between us and the wishing for toys may reap their proper fruit. That didn't sound very Welsh, did it? No. Uh, anyway. <laughs> no, that went very Indian. <laughs> it, did, it did go quite Indian, didn't it? Yes, we really need to stop trying to do accents. I don't think we do. I think it's comedy gold, Sam. I think it's excellent. <laughs> um, I, I think it's part the, the best part of the podcast. 1501, the two of them actually get married properly. So we have a fantastic series of events in the UK when uh, Catherine comes over. They meet for the first time in a small village called Dogmersfield in Hampshire. And you would not believe what happens, Sam. The two of them, they, they meet and they think, hey, we're going to be able to talk in Latin to each other. But you would not believe it. They've been taught different pronunciations of Latin. You would not believe it. Oh, I know. shit the I know. Hashtag Tudor royalty problems. Um, so they can't actually understand each other. Oh, I don't know. He says potatoes, you say potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> yep. Oh dear, I don't know. So that was a bit of a disappointment for them. Catherine then rides on to London. She enters London riding on a mule, apparently, alongside the future Henry VIII. That's very Spanish. Yes, I suppose it is, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not at all. They were quite good horsemen, but I think it's nice and stereotypically racist to say that she arrived on a donkey. <laughs> on, a stra- on a straw donkey with a sombrero. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking a bottle of a unidentifiable local spirits. Yeah, dressed like the man from Del Monte. 
So she enters London riding on a mule, which which is, I, I guess, it doesn't seem to me like the most... Why? I don't know. There must be some symbolism behind it, but anyway. Then there's just shitloads of pageantry. Basically, there's wine flowing freely for the people of London. There's entertainment at the local castles. And at St Paul's, they have the wedding. Catherine exits the bishop's palace. She walks along a blue carpet... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That was anything that involves the word bishop. I immediately there's just just something that throws innuendos into my head. Sorry. Exiting the bishop's palace is definitely a euphemism for taking a shit. <laughs> Father, are you ready? The service begins in ten minutes. Don't worry. I'm just exiting the bishop's palace. I'll be right with you. Have you got a match? <laughs> so, so, so Catherine takes a massive pre-wedding shit. <laughs> and then, and then, <laughs> oh dear God. And um, <laughs> so she then walks along a, a blue carpet towards St Paul's. Oh dear. And she's dressed in... I'm trying to bring this back on track. And she's, you can do this. I believe in you. And she's dressed in white satin, embroidered with pearls and gold thread. And here's a, a little interesting one for people who are interested in the history of dressmaking, which is very few people. Um, she had a farthingale under her dress, which was very unusual in England. I think it was the, one of the first times this had been seen in the UK, which is like it's like a hoop underneath your dress that gives it that shape so can you imagine can you remember your pictures of sort of a poofy like a poofy it dress. makes it poofy i think that's the term that's used in the fashion industry a poofy and she wore a veil when she had long uh she wore her hair long which apparently was a sign of virginity so they walk along um a raised walkway in in st paul's cathedral that's hundreds of feet long and which just makes it easier for people to see them. And that's got a red carpet on it with gold nails and fine wool trim and all sorts of fancy stuff. There are tapestries. Very nice. Oh, it sounds very swanky. I think no expense is spared here. There were tapestries all on the walls depicting sim- symbolic sort of events. And I think there's a lot of um, King Arthur themes on these on these tapestries from all accounts. Uh, Arthur also was in white satin. <laughs> An equally beautiful dress. Absolutely. And he had his farthingale. Absolutely. Um, and he, he he too, presumably, had done a massive exit. Long hair. <laughs> long, long hair, yeah. Oh, yes, and that. Yes. Um, and so they exit the cathedral after the ceremony, which took about three hours, I think. And there's a giant mountain has been built, covered in precious metal, red roses, models of dragons. There are fountains of wine, mini kings and queens. It just sounds like Legoland. It's just fantastic. Um, there are trumpets tooting and they have a feast at Lambeth Castle. And I imagine as they go into Lambeth Castle, they're probably doing the Lambeth Walk as they go there. So they have this feast at Lambeth Castle. And then the next day they get on a flotilla of 40 barges and they go up the Thames to Westminster where they enjoy a week of jousting and banqueting. So it's a big deal this. Very, very big event. It sounds like quite the party, Absolutely yeah. Absolutely, massive event. We have the bedding ceremony, Sam. This is quite fun. So the bedding ceremony. I didn't realise this sort of thing existed. It's sort of referenced in Game of Thrones, isn't it, if you've ever watched Game of Thrones? But there was a bedding ceremony where holy water was sprinkled on the bed and then Catherine is unveiled and laid in bed by her sort of maids-in-waiting or some of her close attendants. And then Arthur is escorted by his mates. And this is the best bit, Sam. He's escorted by his mates who are playing viols and tabors. Ooh, 
yeah, it gets drummed into the room. Absolutely, just the sort of thing that gets me in the mood. Uh, vials and tabors. <laughs> There's going to be some performance anxiety there, isn't there? Just got all your mates going, Ugh. Yeah, absolutely, after one of them has just sprinkled his only water over the bed. Yeah, it sounds a bit like a stag do, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. So, yeah, got the bed- they've got the bedding ceremony. You're right, I mean, the two of them, how old? This is, this is 1501, so um, uh, they're both 15, 15, 16 at the time. So, yeah, it must be pretty intimidating. This first night in bed together is actually a really very significant moment in Tudor history, and we'll come on to why. Sir Anthony Willoughby says that uh, the morning after... Arthur addresses him and says, Willoughby, bring me a cup of ale, for I have been this night in the midst of Spain. Oh. Bit of a dickish comment to make, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that is. <laughs> uh, what a twat. Yeah, what a twat, absolutely. But we hear from other sources, like a chap called Juana de Gamara. Um, I quote, Francisca de Caceres, I probably haven't pronounced that correctly, who was in charge of dressing and undressing the Queen, and who she liked and confided in a lot, was looking sad and telling the other ladies that nothing had passed between Prince Arthur and his wife, which surprised everyone and made them laugh at him. So it all sounds very embarrassing and very awkward, to be honest, Sam. So two very different uh, accounts of the story there. Boys, as usual, being boys. Exactly. And this is where it becomes significant, Sam. When um, Arthur dies... Uh, which happens not long after they're married. So he dies in 1502, they're married in 1501. We're then in a bit of a pickle, because this perfect wedding that was supposed to build a really useful alliance with Spain and also tie up some of these lines of succession is is fucked. It's, It's gone down the pan because of an inconvenient death of Arthur. Selfish bastard. Very um, rude of him. In canonical law... You cannot marry the wife of a widowed brother. I've got the. It actually comes from Leviticus, Sam. This is probably the first time I've ever read something from the Bible. And I quote, You must not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You are not to have sexual relations with her. You must not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would shame your brother. You must not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. You are not to marry her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter and have sexual relations with her. They are close relatives. It is depressing. That's from Leviticus. And the reason this is significant... I feel like Leviticus and Pornhub would not get on. (laughs) No, most definitely not. Um, I've seen seen some of the bloody posts you've been putting up on Facebook over Valentine's Day. Incidentally, uh, on Facebook, search for That Was Genius. On Instagram, That Was Genius. And uh, on Twitter, I can't remember. That Was Genius Podcast, I think. Good. Follow us. Follow us anyway. Follow us everywhere you can. Follow us everywhere you can find us. It's, it's suggested that Henry VIII actually marry Catherine to, to keep that sort of alliance. In fact, I think it's even suggested at one point that um, Henry VII marry Catherine of Aragon. We know that Henry VIII um, that married Catherine of Aragon. That's, that's the marriage that is more well known. But there's, there's huge amounts of debate around the, the legitimacy of this marriage because of what happened on that wedding night. So if Catherine of Aragon and Arthur did get it on, then technically the marriage was consecrated in canonical law and Henry VIII could not marry her. If it wasn't consecrated and the two did not shag, then she could marry Henry VIII. So you can see where this becomes such a big issue. And it becomes an issue even later on when Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon have been married and are struggling so much to have a, have a male heir. So they've obviously had Mary I, but they've had all these problems with, with having other children. 
And so Henry VIII starts to believe that the marriage is actually doomed to failure. And he's been reading the Bible. And there's another quote from Leviticus. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered the nakedness of his uncle. They will bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has uncovered the nakedness of his brother. They shall be childless. So it becomes an issue for Henry VIII as well. So Henry VIII is now wondering, well, did they have sex? Because if they did, this is the reason why we're having so many problems. And this is one of the arguments he makes for getting it on with Anne Boleyn and giving uh, giving Catherine of Aragon the boot. So there you have it, Sam. That was the brief romance of Arthur of Wales and Catherine of Aragon before she gets shipped over to Henry VIII. That's really interesting. So how long after the first husband died did she marry Henry? Uh, a good point. I think there's an there's a period after the death of Arthur where Catherine of Aragon's value in the sort of um, royal wedding market is significantly decreased because there is a suspicion that she has actually slept with Arthur. Well, of course. Absolutely. So uh, there is a period where she's of kind of no value to anyone. And by all accounts, she leads a reasonably miserable life in London for a while, almost as a hostage. And then eventually, uh, eventually, she clearly marries Henry the Henry the Eighth. But I'm not sure how long it takes. I mean, I do have the information that 1509, she first miscarried a girl um, with Henry the Eighth. So presumably it was within... Ten years. Oh, very interesting. And poor Catherine as well. Oh, she doesn't sound like she had a particularly um, enjoyable life, to be honest with you, Sam. No. I mean, ladies throughout history tend not to have done... They don't tend to have enjoyed themselves fantastically along the way. No, no. Uh, in fact, on that subject, Sam, I think it's actually quite nice that we have done this topic because most of history is about males, isn't it? Let's be honest. The study of history is very male-dominated, not just the people studying it. I don't think that's the case anymore. But most of the most of the things you study are male-dominated, aren't they, in history? So it's nice to have a topic where we do actually get a 50-50 split, isn't it? It certainly is. And I have to say, that segues very nicely into my story for today because my story is all about powerful women, uh, both probably fictional and very real. So today I'm going to talk about the story of the goddess Ishtar, and King Tammuz. Ooh. And we are going to go right, right back, Tom, to the very dawn of civilization. About 2700 BC, and the Sumerian Empire, which was one of the very first human civilizations, it was based around what's modern day Iraq and Syria and kind of bits of Turkey between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Mm. And we're also going to go back to the first ever known author, who is the source for quite a lot of what we're going to talk about today, who is called, and I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, and that's my bad, and I apologise to her profusely for that, uh, Enheduanna, okay. who was a priestess and prolific poet and writer. And actually her stuff is really beautiful if you read it back today. It was translated, first translated in Victorian times, but it's it's really lovely what she writes. There is a bit of a disclaimer to what I'm going to talk about today, because there's a few ancient poems and stories that we have scraps of that mention the guys that we're going to talk about today. But it was all written so long ago, and only a few lines of each one have survived, and it makes it really tricky to actually translate properly. Uh, for a start, the written language of Sumerian is really hard. Uh, because it's kind of in shorthand, where unless you know the context, lots of words can mean exactly the same thing. But secondly, and probably more importantly, whilst the Sumerians were really pretty good at writing things down and were one of the first civilizations to do so, they were bloody useless at writing down the same things twice. 
So one story or one character in different sources, sometimes by the same person, can be completely different. Ooh, that doesn't make life very easy. With that out of the way, Tammuz, the hero of our story, was either a king or a god or probably both. And Ishtar was, depending on where you read it, uh, Tammuz's wife, his lover, or his mother, which does put a slightly different spin on this story. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Yeah. They're gods. They've never been too worried about this kind of thing in the past. Uh, let's not worry about that too much. But Ishtar was a very senior goddess in Sumerian society. She was the goddess of both war and love. That is... Two sides. It's a kind of an odd pairing. Yeah, two sides of the same coin. Well, quite. Because she was strong, she was single-minded, she demanded loyalty and bravery, and all of those are very important when you're either going to run into battle on someone's command, or you're trying to pull, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think she also understood uh, very much, and the Sumerians did as well, they were quite poetic about this kind of thing, that sometimes love itself is a bit of a battleground, I guess particularly over whether to go for the Domino's or Papa John's or who's doing the washing up. I thought Papa John's was a game for a moment there, Sam, when you said Domino's, um, and then I realised what you were talking about. <laughs> I've never played Papa John's. Oh, it's a great game. You start by taking your pants down and smacking each other's bottoms. And... <laughs> Shouting, Papa John, Papa John. <laughs> Papa, Papa John, Papa John, Papa John. Invented by the Pope, Pope John. <laughs> <laughs> Best played with underage boys, yeah. <laughs> it's all schoolyard fun and games, Tom. It's the kind of thing they play at Winchester College. <laughs> but Ishtar was exceptionally beautiful. She was always in full makeup and dressed to the nines because she was the original power boss. And she had an appalling temper. If anyone failed to worship her enough or show her enough loyalty, she would just destroy their kingdoms with the click of a finger. So she's absolutely not one to be messed with. Uh, if you think the devil wears Prada, you're kind of on the right lines with Ishtar. But she's lonely, Tom. She's lonely. Maybe if she wasn't such a bitch... <laughs> Ouch. I think someone's about to get smitten. <laughs> yeah. And I mean that in the biblical sense rather than the love sense. Actually, that really works, doesn't it? Smitten and smiting are very similar things. Yeah, smitten and smiting. But Ishtar, Ishtar was lonely. She wanted to get married. And she had her eyes set on the god of farming, who is a guy called Enkindu. You know, nice looking chap. Lots of land. Grows excellent grain. Good with the pigs. Well, well, no. Because Tammuz hears about this and he's having none of it because he is the god of shepherding and livestock. Oh. And so in Sumerian society, he is way richer and more powerful. He is the, the big man. And he says, what? It, she can't marry this peasant god. Look at him. He's got no sheep. Ugh. Yeah, he's got nothing. What's it? He's got grains. Great. He's got some land. Well, whoop-dee-doo. I've got goats. Yeah, so so he has a word with Ishtar's brother, the sun god, and he says, look, put in a good word for me. Ishtar is having absolutely none of this, though. She has her mindset on Enkindu. And so at this point, we get history's first known love poem. And it is called Inanna, which is another word for Ishtar. It's the, the old word for Ishtar. Inanna prefers the farmer. So it's a fairly nice descriptive title. Does pretty much what it says on the tin. Is is there a rhyme at some point in this poem with pajamas? Yes, Inanna in pajamas is going down the stairs. Inanna in pajamas is spreading love and the chaos of war everywhere. Beautiful. 
Is that the poem? Yes, it is. I'm not actually going to read the poem because quite a lot of it's missing. It's a really nice poem, though. But the poem starts by Ishtar's brother listing all the good points about Tammuz, trying to sway his sister towards uh, towards this more powerful god. He says he's, he's loaded. He's got the best wine. He's got good oil. He makes good oil and he'll share it with you. And it's always summer when he's around. He's got a bright, sunny disposition. Look, he's lovely. And she says, no. Ishtar says, I won't go out with him. I'm not going to walk him to his blank or compliment him on his blank at this point the translation is unclear and the words are missing so you can add in your own words there oh it's interactive that's good (laughs) yeah it is it's an interactive poem i won't walk with him to his local spa (laughs) or compliment him on his penis (laughs) is that what usually happens when you walk someone to the spa on a date they end up showing you their penis (laughs) i'm not aware of this well Certain spas in certain parts of London, yes. Fair enough. But Ishtar says, no, no, I like the farmer. He's a, ni- he's a nice lad. He's my choice. And so Timur steps up himself and says, look, whatever he's got, I will give you far better. If he gives you a new wool cloak, I will give both of you a sheep. If he gives you his good wine, I'll give you some milk. Which seems like a fair exchange. Yeah, that seems like a, that doesn't seem like a, an upgrade. <laughs> no, but then, then he says, and this is genuinely in the poem. He says, "If he gives you his best wine, I'll give you my cottage cheese." Ooh, that's a, that. <laughs> which is ooh, that's a bit forward. Which is that's a deal, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, whoa there! Put down the eighty-nine Chateau Neuf de Pap, darling. Daddy's home, and he's bought cottage cheese. We're having baked potatoes for dinner, honey. Take me now. And a low-fat, high-protein option to keep us trim. <laughs> and so, Indeed. And so let me just clear this up. On one side, she's being offered a nice woolly jacket, a glass of wine. So so you've got the farmer who's offering pretty much nothing. He's got some grain. He's got some wine. Right. That's pretty much it. Right. And he says, oh, I'll give you a cloak as well. And on the other hand, you've got this god saying, well, forget the cloak. I'll give you the bloody sheep and some milk and some cheese that sounds shit though doesn't um, it i'd rather have the cloak and the wine because you know once you've got the sheep you're like oh fantastic i've got some sheep what the fuck am i going to do with absolutely. this absolutely if, if i want I, oh a cloak would be nice fuck i've got to make it myself i'd rather have the cloak well you know what they say tom give a goddess a cloak and she'll be warm for a day teach a goddess how to shear a sheep spin yarn into wool <laughs> dye it and knit and she'll be warm for a lifetime that's true it is true, Sam. I, I, yeah. We're only halfway through the poem because Enkindu says, whoa, 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 whoa. Who invited you to this matchmaking session? Look, I'll marry her, yeah? And you, you can take your sheep and you can let them have my land. How about that? I will give you, if you piss off now, all my fields. And Timus gets absolutely furious and he says, get out of here, mate. You can't compete with all this. You can't compete with my cottage cheese industry. Mm. And Kindu gives in and he says, all right, fine. And depending on how you read the poem, he either says, you can marry her, or he says, I'll marry her, but you can borrow her every now and now and Ooh. then, and I'll give you some beans as well. What? <laughs> Which is chivalrous and indeed the art of the deal. That's very strange, isn't it? And But she's... She, yeah, it's the joys of lost languages. <laughs> she's the goddess of war. I'm not sure she's... War and love. War and love. Yeah. Does she want to be shared about? Uh, I, I suspect that she would have had something to say about this. Unfortunately, yeah. in the poem, uh, she doesn't. But yeah, and Kindu gives in and basically says, all right, I, I can't compete. I'm backing off. 
and that's the end of the poem. Timo says some nice things about her eyes. And Ishtar thinks, well, I've got to marry someone. This guy seems pretty driven, just like me. You know, we both got goals in life. We both want to destroy the world and make everyone have lots of babies. And cottage cheese. And cottage cheese all round, yeah. And and so they get married and by many counts spend many happy years slash millennia together because apparently Timur's ruled his kingdom for 26,000 years. So let's take these sources with a pinch of salt, shall we? That's a good effort, isn't it? 26,000 years. It is. So they're very happy for years and years and years until one day Ishtar has to go on a trip to the underworld. She has to go to the funeral of her brother-in-law, the Bull of Heaven. But all the other gods are very suspicious of this because this is the goddess of war they're dealing with and they're convinced that she's launching a coup. In another myth, she'd actually already done this. She'd invaded heaven and had won and basically taken over. So they had another good reason to doubt as well and that's because Ishtar came to the funeral dressed for war which in her meant, in her case meant a nice dress and lots of mascara and makeup because that was her battle dress. Yeah. <laughs> Forget armour, she just dressed to the nines like she was going on a date. And in fact, it's the same dress uh, that she wore to go and visit all of her lovers, of which she had many. Being, of course, the goddess of love, she she shared herself around. She's sassy, isn't she? She's a modern woman. She's not afraid to go after what she wants, Tom. Yeah, she yeah, absolutely. So the gods of the underworld are deeply suspicious. She's come to this funeral for her brother-in-law, either dressed for a shag or dressed for a fight. You never know, do you, with her? You never know. It's much like going out again in Newcastle, as we've said before, <laughs> yeah. on a Saturday night. It goes one way or the other. <laughs> come 11 o'clock, all bets are off. <laughs> So the gods of the underworld are rightly suspicious about what Ishtar is up to, but they hatch a cunning plan. They make her stop at each of the seven gates of the underworld to remove an item of clothing. So she gradually becomes naked. So by the time she reaches the others down in the centre of hell for the funeral, she is completely naked and has apparently as a result lost all of her powers. And so they kill her immediately. The other gods Ooh. get around her and they go full Julius Caesar. They go senate on her and, and absolutely rip her to shreds. Oh because obviously she's powerless without her Kevlar cocktail dress. <laughs> anyway, so this is the god of love who's just been killed though. And boom, there's no one to look after love on earth anymore. So everyone becomes infertile immediately and everyone stops caring about each other. Oh. All the marriages break down. There's chaos in the streets. You know, royal families start to falter and kingdoms collapse. It is absolute chaos on the plus side sam nobody starts fighting well no that's true <laughs> there's no there's no wars there's no wars are there? um, but what have you got to fight for if not love tom oh that was beautiful and money that could be a john lennon song fortunately someone sees sense e the god of wisdom sees what's going on and he thinks ah oh, shit we've done it now there's going to be no one left to worship us if no one's having babies. So he hatches a plan to revive Ishtar. And this bit of the story's lost. We don't know exactly what the plan is, but it works. She escapes and she heads home to the real world where everything's back to normal. They're all shagging away like rabbits. All of the arguments forgotten, bonking away. But there's a problem that needs resolving. There's a hole in the afterlife. There's a spot. No one can leave the afterlife. There's there's a set number of people down there. And when you die, you're down there. And the, the number has to be right. Otherwise, chaos will reign. So that gap needs filling. Who the fuck wrote this, what poor s Who the fuck wrote this story? <laughs> I know. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a kind of a, a convenient plot device, that, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Have you heard of these stories that you can, um, you can write online where everyone writes a paragraph and it just meanders? It's like a meandering story. Um, that's what this is starting to sound like. It's just bonkers. 
It's going all over the place. It's a great story. She goes to a funeral. They think she's there to invade. They kill her. Again? No, I'm going back over it again to try and explain it to you. (laughs) (laughs) She went to the funeral. They killed her. Someone thought, oops, mistake. They brought her back. But her place in the afterlife has to be filled. So what poor sap is going to get cast into hell to replace this goddess? Well, Ishtar is pretty furious. She is the goddess of war and she is definitely on the fucking warpath now. And she thinks the first person I see is going to get it. But who does she come across? She comes across her manicurist. That is from the story. That's a quote. Her manicurist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she comes across her manicurist and hairdresser. But the poor the poor lass is devastated at what's happened. And she launches herself at Ishtar, crying and wailing because she's so pleased to see her again. And Ishtar thinks, oh, well, bless her. That's sweet. No death for you today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you for next time. And the same goes for Tamis's bodyguard who's very pleased to see her and go, oh, queen, you're back. And she thinks, right, no death for you either. But uh-oh, here's poor Tamas himself. Now, he's been having a whale of a time, Tom. His wife's away at this funeral. He's got the palace to himself. Ishtar comes in. She sees him chilling out, naked in a bath of cottage cheese, reading Sheep and Shepherding magazine. <laughs> and she is king furious, Tom. Oh, you would. She has had it. Absolutely. She launches right into him. Why didn't you call? I've been literally dead all day. Blah, 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 blah. And she says, right, that is it. I have had it with you, mate. But these are gods we're talking about, so there's no sleeping on the sofa when these guys fight. She summons a bunch of demons and they drag him straight down to hell. And he's got, what does he do to defend himself? So he he can't summon up demons or anything. Cottage cheese, is that not much use? Against demons? I think he probably hurled a bit at it with a spoon. Yeah. But no, he's he's gone. He's down in the underworld. But a few months pass and Ishtar's finally ready to forgive old Temu. She thinks, oh, maybe I overreacted a little bit. Maybe condemning him to eternity in the afterlife was a bit much just for not really missing me as much as he should have done. She misses having him around and those special things he does with the shepherd's crook and the cottage cheese. And besides... Without the god of shepherding, all the sheep and goats are just wandering around aimlessly chewing all the tapestries and causing a nuisance. No. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction in this world, Tom. Absolutely. So she strikes a deal. She strikes a deal with Tamaz's sister, Gestiana, which means they'll swap places every so often. So Gestiana will go down to the underworld for a few months, giving Tamaz a few months back in the real world, where uh, Ishtar can have him all to herself and they can be mates again. It seems like a bit of a compromise. The underworld sorted, so there's no chaos there. On Earth, everything's back to normal. So who? So the, sorry, the sister that goes down for half of the year. What? What is? She, is she a goddess of anything in particular? Either she is a goddess. I don't know exactly what she's a goddess of. So presumably something you know wintry. Yeah. Well, I think that well the the sun bull, the bull that is the sun who died was. Tamas's brother so she might be kind of uh, some kind of goddess of the sun um why he didn't go to his brother's funeral i don't know <laughs> sent his wife along instead whilst he sat in a bath <laughs> so for six months every year Tamas returns from the underworld and whenever he does the herds are filled with new life and spring and summer arrive before he has to head back down to the underworld again for winter and that is also the story of how seasons came to be there you go and the moral of the story is when your partner comes home looking like death Show them a little care. So that's a that's a bizarre story. That is a really bizarre story. It's a really weird story, but it is the first recorded love story. Fantastic. And so, tell me more about the Sumerians, Sam. So you said they were between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Did you say? In yeah, well, that's where they started out. Like a lot of these ancient civilizations, um, fertile land like and Ur. In fertile land, yep. yeah. Some of these cities, these absolutely ancient, the first the first cities and the first civilizations. 
they had some really good but mad ideas. So some of them had cities that had no doors. So it was one giant building. The entire city was one giant building. And all of the doorways were in the roof. So it made it impossible to invade because you couldn't get up on the buildings. All they do is pull the ladders up and suddenly you can't get into their city. Which is actually a really clever idea. A really interesting civilization. Yeah. But very much, very spiritual. Very much into their gods. And very much into the power of women as well. So lots of very senior priestesses. Lots of very senior goddesses. That's good. That's a good effort. We've gone old. I like it. And that, I think, brings us towards the end of today's episode. Have you had fun, Tom? I have indeed had fun. What are, what are your thoughts for next week? I was thinking about this. I think we should do stupidity next week. Stupidity. Okay. Histor- historical examples of great stupidity. I don't think it's going to be hard. Oh, I don't think we'll be short of ideas. Exactly what I was going to say, Sam. I don't think we're going to be short of ideas. <laughs> well, that is pretty much it for us. Tune in next week for an episode on historical stupidity. And in the meantime, do please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram if you search for That Was Genius. And we are on Twitter as well. So do get in touch with us. Uh, Comment, like, follow, subscribe, all the normal things. And we will see you again next week. Say goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, Tom. Hey! Hey, that's that's good, isn't it? Right, I'll let you go to sleep, you drunken (laughs) arsehole. See you later. Bye.